Okay, so now that we're through the 2018 midterm election, like it or not, national attention is going to shift to the next election in 2020, where we're going to get to decide who's going to occupy the White House. One of the candidates who may be running is somebody who made quite a splash the last time we voted for president, and that person is Senator Bernie Sanders. So we brought in this guy named Rich Pelletier, who was Senator Sanders' national field director back in 2016. And I asked him things including, how would you change the way you ran Bernie's campaign? Also, we talked about the next presidential election and what it'll take to win in a landscape that's really been scrambled in the Trump era. We also talk about health, of course, including about the political prospects of one of the policy pillars of Bernie's campaign, single-payer health care for all. So let's get to this conversation with Rich, who is a fantastic political consultant. You can also, I hope, find the time to subscribe and rate us so we can get the word out. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rich Pelletier. Rich Pelletier, welcome. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So you were Bernie Sanders' national field director. You're a political consultant. How does one become that? So I think it's born out of uh, activism, right? So I think that that's where most people get involved in politics. They see a candidate or they see an issue that they care about, and they choose to get involved, whether it's, you know— showing up at an office and answering the phone or knocking on doors or making phone calls. Then I think it kind of builds from there. There's not really, I think there's only one school in the nation that actually teaches campaign management. I could be wrong. So it's not something that you're going to decide when you're 14 years old and pick a college based on that like you might if you were going to be a nurse or a doctor. What did you want to be when you were a teenager? So I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. So I went to school with the plan to uh, get my undergraduate degree, then then practice environmental law somewhere. And I ended up not doing that. I ended up um, going to school for two years, taking a break, and then I joined the Army. So I was in the first Gulf War, and I was stationed in Germany. Previous to the Gulf War, we flew to Iraq on Christmas Day, 1991, I think was the date. And then they loaded us into these uh, deuce and a half, two and a half ton trucks, bullet holes from World War II and drove us to the uh, Rhine-Mine Air Force Base in Frankfurt and loaded us onto a a Tower Air chartered plane. I don't even know if they exist anymore and flew us to Saudi. And then after the war, I came back and I ended up applying for a conscientious objector discharge and got home and uh, met a guy uh, who was running for Congress against Olympia Snow. And not a, a terribly liberal gentleman. Pat McGowan was his name. Great guy, uh, but, you know, certainly a, a kind of rural Maine, very moderate Democrat. But he was one of his planks was that if he was in Congress, he wouldn't have voted for the Gulf War. He wouldn't have voted to authorize the Gulf War. So I was intrigued, and I started volunteering on his campaign. Uh, a very good friend of mine from high school was uh, managing his little office in Fort Kent, Maine. And from there, I ended up meeting the Speaker of the House and uh, went down to Augusta and uh, did a semester for credit as a page. Because we had our benefits, you know, our health care, our retirement, kind of all of those different pieces, we would then go work on campaigns in the off year. 
there was kind of this big shift in Maine politics around then. We had uh, George Mitchell, who was the uh, statesman. Sen- yeah. statesman. He was the majority leader of the Senate at the time, was retiring. Um, so that kind of opened up the uh, it Maine's a small state, two congressional districts and two senators. So that just kind of opened up this, this uh, great deal of jockeying. So uh, Olympia Snow ran for the Senate seat and Tom Andrews in the first congressional district was running against her. So the, the Democrat and Republican. And then there were eight people, I believe, who were running for that on the Democratic side for that second congressional seat. And uh, I jumped on the bandwagon of John Baldacci, um, who then became a congressman. And then I worked in his congressional office for a few years. And then uh, from there, I just kind of bounced around from campaign to campaign and uh, was on a campaign in uh, Rhode Island that um, had a premature ending, as we would say. And uh, I, uh, I got a call from a buddy of mine who said, hey, would you be interested in moving out to Colorado to run the America Votes table? And I'd never been west of the Mississippi before then. So I said yes. I ended up packing all of my worldly belongings into my tiny little Toyota Matrix and taking three drays and driving out to Colorado, and and here I am. If you're interested in politics, you should find a candidate or an issue or a campaign that you care about and try it out. See if you like it. And then from there, you'll learn the different pieces. I think I've had every job on a campaign from campaign manager to press secretary to field director to whatever they had me do to canvasser. I've, you know, I've, I've knocked on many, many doors in my life as well. And so fast forward to the 2016 election. How did you get hooked up with Bernie? So I had a few friends who were working on the Bernie campaign. One was the data director and the other was the CFO. And they gave me a call, I would say, in the summer of 2015, and were like, you know, this. when we started this campaign, we th- thought on best-case scenario we would have $40 million. And when they called me in July, I believe they had 37, they had ra- already raised $37 million. Wow. So the campaign was had w- certainly lacked a lot of structure. So it was essentially four campaigns in the first four states, and then literally 50 interns in Burlington kind of managing the rest of it. So my buddy John reached out to me and said, listen, you know, we need to kind of grow up pretty quickly. We've got, you know, uh, the first four are kind of wired, but then we've got another, you know, 54 states and territories we have to figure out how to get through if things continue to go along this 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 path. So... um Thought long and hard about it because my wife and I have two small children who live here in Colorado. So um, talked with them about it. Ended up deciding to take the plunge. So I ended up in, I think it was October of 15, I ended up moving out to Burlington and staying out there for almost a year. I think I was the one of the last staffers on the campaign as we were closing out the, the books for the FEC and such uh, kind of post-convention. And what does the field director do in a campaign like a presidential? Well, so in a typical campaign, a field director would manage the operations in the states. This campaign, having really no level of infrastructure in the national campaign headquarters, I ended up essentially being utility player. So I ended up managing 
the political and outreach departments, ballot access, uh, the field, uh, pretty much everything except for communications and advance. So those were kind of the two pieces of the campaign that were not my purview. The rest was was pretty much on me to manage. At one point, I had 1,200 staff who were through layers reporting to me. Wow. I think it's safe to say that the campaign exceeded expectations uh, when it comes to, to most people. I don't know if it exceeded yours, but you know, ultimately, you didn't win the nomination. Uh, it sounds like you had a significant role in the campaign. Have you thought about if you could do something differently, what that would be? Knowing what I know now, I suppose, is probably the way to start that. Yeah. I, I would certainly uh, have had the campaign do a better job of strategically placing staff and building out earlier. The challenge was, though, when I joined, you know, even though we had raised $37 million, we were still of the belief that this could end at any point. And it was a very untraditional campaign in how it was funded, right? I mean, we had no finance staff. We had one person who did half-time finance and also did political outreach. So it was so there there really wasn't a staff of folks who were who knew and could predict how money would come in, what that would look like over the course of a budget from June of 2015 until, you know, June of 2016. So we ended up spending a lot of time chasing our tails trying to catch up to the money was that was coming in. So we really were only able to get maybe three or four weeks in front of any state, shifting staff around the country and that sort of thing, and mail programs and all those different pieces. So I would certainly put together plans earlier that looked at these different states and had a theory of how to win in these different states, what the processes were, all of those pieces, uh, rather than, like I said, playing catch up as we were going. So I think that that's an opportunity for Bernie this year. If he's going to run again, I think he has the benefit of hindsight. He has the benefit of understanding kind of where that grassroots activism and financial support for the campaign, how that comes in and, and what that might look like over the course of a year and a half versus really just trying to figure out kind of where are we going to be in a month. You know, I have really got the sense that you caught a shooting star in, in, in 2016 with Bernie like I said, exceeded all expectations, runaway small donor fundraising. He was a significant challenge to the eventual nominee, had, you know, mass appeal. Say he does run again. How can you replicate that same sort of energy that was captured in 2016? Or do you even have to? It's going to be a much larger field, right? So there's not going to be that kind of dichotomy between the two leading candidates Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know that Bernie has to raise $250 million again to win a primary. I think that that's certainly within bounds for him to be able to raise. Uh, so it's going to be a different campaign. But I think that, you know, the reason that Bernie caught fire so effectively was really a few different reasons. One, I think, is everyone felt and understood that he was authentic, that what he said he'd been saying for the last you know, 40 years. This was not something new. He was not a Johnny come lately. He was not 
deciding where he stood on issues based on polls, but based on what he thought was right, whatever his moral compass was. And I think that resonated with a lot of people, particularly progressive activists. I think that folks were hungry for someone who didn't appear to be calculating, that appeared to be authentic, that was going to stand up and fight for them, not because it was politically expedient to do, but that's because of what they've been doing for their entire life, for what he'd been doing for his entire life. So I think that that still exists, right? I think the other piece that Bernie uniquely captured with the Democratic base was uh, an economic populism that really spoke to people in a way that I think Democrats have moved away from over the last 30 years. I think people were tired of kind of hearing people say, that's too big an idea for us as a country. That's a too big an idea for you. We're going to move along this line at a slower pace, and maybe in 20 or 30 years we'll get there. I think people were feeling frustrated. I think people were seeing their real wages decrease ever since the Great Recession and even before. I think people were seeing um, them being one paycheck away from bankruptcy due to medical bills. They were seeing themselves one paycheck away from homelessness. So many pieces, right, where people were just truly feeling this angst about their future and their children's future. And I think Bernie was presented a vision that really appealed to them and a, a vision where government worked for them, where government was working for everyday working people instead of where people feel the government works for now is an elite few who are making lots of money off of uh, the backs of everyday working people. So I think it was a time for the message. I think it's still time for that message. And I think at the end of the day, that's why Donald Trump was so successful. Mm -hmm. They both capitalized on that same sentiment that people were feeling in a very effective way, which I think comes back to the to the idea that that I have, and I've been kind of percolating over the last couple of years, is that people are agnostic about solutions. I think every, everyday voters are agnostic about how do we get from A to B. They just want to elect someone who they feel is trying to get them from A to B. Mm -hmm. And I think we as Democrats make the mistake of leading with solutions without ever identifying the problem. And I think that at the end of the day, people could care less whether it's a big government solution or a small government solution to that anxiety that I just talked about. They just want someone who they feel understands that and is going to do something to move the ball forward. Yeah, it would seem, like you said, based on the things that people like Bernie were saying and what Donald Trump was saying at the time, that there seems to be some muddling of, of what left and right even is. And during the campaign, Donald Trump, for example, promised to not cut Medicaid, not cut Medicare. I believe he was the first Repu Republican nominee in memory at minimum to do that, spoke sympathetically about opioids. Now, when he became president, obviously, he went along with cuts to things like Medicaid and spoke less sympathetically about opioids. But based on what you said, and thinking about the dialogue today when it comes to how Trump approaches trade and some of the other issues I mentioned, do you think that there's still a constituency for a traditional 
economic and cultural conservative, kind of in a, the mold of a Paul Ryan, is there still a critical mass of a constituency to win a presidential election hewing to those traditional lines? I don't think so. I, I think at the end of the day that, and I think you can say that uh, on the other side of the coin, it's challenging space for someone who is a economically moderate or very centrist Democrat to run as well. It'll be interesting. I mean, when you're going to have, you know, 28 people running in a presidential election, you know, somebody could very well sneak by with 25% of the vote and it comes down to a convention to decide, which would be a very interesting story as well. So, so yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, people in this nation are frustrated and I think they are ready for some sort of change. I think that the system for most people has not been working. I think here in Denver, teachers can't afford to live where they teach. People in general are fighting just to keep their heads above water in a way that I think is much more prescient than it has been in the past. So I think whoever, the path for whoever is going to win has to be a path where they understand and speak about those pressures that people are feeling. And I think that that manifests itself as this economic populism now. And the question is whether or not a progressive solution to an economic populist problem is different than a conservative solution in the eyes of the 8% of voters who ultimately decide elections. And I honestly don't think that there is. I think that people, as I said, are, are really agnostic about the solutions. Uh, but somebody has to speak to that. And I think they have to speak to bold ideas and they have to speak to a big picture that paints a picture of greater prosperity for people in five, ten years, not 30 years. Trump being president or someone like Trump being president is a moment in time. And I think it was just a, a convergence of um, the Great Recession, a lack of progress, and as well as a real understanding or movement towards the fact that so few are benefiting from our economy versus so many of us are not. Right, I mean, a good campaign has an arc of a story, and I'm stealing this from a, a friend of mine, Dave Gold, from New Mexico. But, you know, he believes that, and I do as well, that a good campaign tells a story that has an arc and a narrative like any other story. There's a protagonist, there's an antagonist. And at the end of the day, the protagonist in a good campaign are the voters. And the candidate who wins should be the one who is facilitating their ability to be the protagonist in the story of that campaign. And I think Trump did a great job of, of empowering people to believe that their vote could fundamentally change their reality. Thinking about 2020 and even beyond, like, have you, do you have thoughts on what the next frontier is in terms of 
organizing or communication strategy and how it can be applied to a presidential campaign? So I think one of the other pieces of Bernie's campaign that was really successful and kind of set us apart from campaigns in the past was the ability to merge online and offline organizing in a way that I don't think had ever been done as successfully. So we were able on the Bernie campaign without infrastructure in states or uh, territories or, or wherever we hadn't gone to yet as a campaign officially, we were able to set up and we had a distributed organizing team is what we called it. And they were fabulous and fantastic. And they would essentially identify folks who were supporters, do some work on the front end to figure out, and this was all done online. So it wasn't a you know, it wasn't a traditional organizer picking up the phone and trying to find 50 people to canvas for them. They would create this movement online and then translate that into action offline. So we would show up and do these barnstorming events in Oklahoma, Tennessee, North Dakota, where hundreds and thousands of people would show up and want to be trained and want to do things. So we were able to get people knocking on doors, making phone calls, months before we were able ever to show up. And it was um, a semi-autonomous volunteer organization that with some direction from the campaign with what to do, but ultimately the putting the boots on the ground and doing the work was done almost organically and on their own. So, and that was unique to Bernie because there were so many people who I think who were motivated by Bernie's message that they really wanted to to have a, part of the campaign. So I think that that's going to be the next piece, right? Is like, how do we tie the, the, how do we tie all these likes on Facebook, which at the end of the day, aren't votes mm -hmm. to something that is actually delivering votes to a candidate. I think that's a part of it. I think at the end of the day too, though, candidates matter. And I think we need to figure out on the democratic side, who's the candidate who is going to inspire our base to do the work. And at the same time is going to speak to people, that undecided middle, that uh, section of the electorate who believe both parties are corrupt and not really doing anything to advance their interests. Who's going to speak to them and inspire them as well? Do you think that on the Democratic side, there will ever be two white men at the top of the ticket again? I would hope not. I think that one of our failings in trying to create cultural, racial, gender diversity is that we think being accepting is enough, mm -hmm. and it never is. Until we are willing, and I think this happens in the nonprofit space, I think this happens in the corporate world, but until we're willing to suspend some of our innate prejudices and put people in power who are don't look like us and don't necessarily talk like us uh, and maybe didn't go to the same schools as us will truly never achieve diversity. Yeah, I'm continually bothered by the use of the word tolerance. It's like I can't think of a word that can communicate a lower bar than, to <laughs> you know, I tolerate mosquitoes in my ear when I'm trying to go to sleep. It seems like such an inappropriate word to use in, in the course of trying to describe what should be a more inclusive environment. 
not just one in which people are present, but which in which people are empowered. I'll be interested to see how far we can get on that when it comes to presidential politics. Well, I mean, just look who's running or who is purportedly running. It's an incredibly diverse group of folks. So so I think it, it, it's happening more slowly than we want it to. But at the end of the day, it, it, it requires us who look like the majority to be uncomfortable sometimes. And that's, that's progress, being uncomfortable. So Bernie ran on single payer, and you've mentioned that you believe that voters are more agnostic about the nature of the solution uh, when it comes to our various problems, including healthcare. What do you think the prospects are in the coming years for actually seeing a single payer system instituted in the US? I guess I am bullish on single payer. Um, I think the start is um, is having um, a public buy-in into the you know the, the state-run healthcare system. I think that is progress. I think people get scared of certain price tags when we talk about our federal government and not scared of others. I mean, I, I I've lost track of how many billions of dollars we spend on the Iraq. Afghanistan wars, and that's never a question. Never a question. No one ever challenges what that costs and what that means to future generations having to pay those bills versus the minute that someone brings up the idea of single-payer health care, the first thing people will say is, we can never afford it. The reality is, is we're paying for it now. We're just paying, you know, you, you don't have to call your insurance premium taxation, but it is. It's just you're being taxed by... Uh, a private entity in order to deliver what I think is a basic human right. So we're going to have to change, I think we're going to have to change the dialogue and the conversation before we can get there. And the conservatives have been doing a very effective job of that for the last 30 years. I mean, they have invested money in nonprofit think tanks that really change the way we talk about our interaction with government. You're Native American, I'm Native American. And if you look at public health statistics, Native Americans are at the bottom of so many measures when it comes to life expectancy or substance use or suicide. And yet at the same time, I would argue that Native Americans are perhaps one of the most invisible groups in America. What can we do politically to do more for Native Americans and folks in Indian country? As we all know, Indian country was created because no one wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, we've created a structural imbalance for Natives in this country, whereby they are not given access to opportunity. They're not given access to education. They're not given access to good jobs, to capital to create good jobs. And I think that coupled with the fact that the degree in which racism still exists when you travel to Indian country and take a step off the reservation to that town next door, um, 
And that seems to be one of the acceptable forms of racism in today's polite society. So I, I think that those are two pieces. I think, you know, we, we devalue in particular, you know, Native women are objectified in a way that is very unhealthy. Native men are objectified in a way that is unhealthy. We still have a football team in our nation's capital called the Redskins. I mean, think about it's, that. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, how you, you, what other group of people could you come up with one of the most derogatory terms over the course of their history and think that was okay to celebrate that. So, yeah, I I don't think it's easy. I think, you know, and reservations are in very challenging places, but at the same time, we don't want to, we don't want the solution to be natives leaving the reservation and losing our culture, our identity, and becoming something other than who they were a generation ago. I think the other thing that people don't realize is the last state to ratify Native American voting rights was 1965. So there, until 1965, there were Native Americans who could not vote in this country. That is astounding into itself as well. And that there's been this almost overnight growth in how Natives have been forced to assimilate or at least understand and are exposed to the other world around them. That's created the life of America is not the life of a reservation. It's 2018. Looking ahead to 2020, what do you have planned? What are you going to do? I haven't decided whether I want to get on another presidential campaign in 2020. I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old at home. So I'm not sure that uh, that I could take another year and a half, two years not being home. And I don't see the prospects of my going to a national presidential campaign headquarters in Denver as being truly within the realm of possibility at this point. If it was the right candidate and the right time again, I think I would probably heed the call to serve because at the end of the day, we're really at a juncture where I think this next president's going to decide the fate of generations. Well, Rich Pelletier, I appreciate your accepting our invitation It's been great. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this. There it is. Just like that. Episode number two out the door. Thanks again to Rich Pelletier. Hey, we want feedback. We're new at this. You can go to woodenteethshow.com and contact us there or hit us up on Twitter. Our handle is at Wooden Teeth Show. Also, subscribe and rate us, you know, like we discussed. Five stars, right? Five stars? Good. All right. Settled. Until next time. <laughs>